0: I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. And on today's episode, we're going to play for you a roundtable event I hosted on Zoom earlier this week to discuss Omicron, because it seems like information about COVID is changing minute by minute these days. And a lot of us at this point don't know what or who to believe. So I decided to invite three doctors, Dr. Vinay Prasad, Dr. Stefan Baral, and Dr. Lucy McBride, whose public perspectives throughout the pandemic have been, for me and I think for many of us, voices of sanity, moderation, and reason amongst chaos, irrationality, and fear. We kicked off the discussion by talking about why people have hit a breaking point with the pandemic. We talked about the issue of school closures, kids, masks, Boosters, when you can hang out with friends who test positive for COVID. And then we opened up the conversation to listeners. They chimed in with their questions about everything from myocarditis to mandates to ivermectin. This discussion was open to subscribers only. So if you like what you hear and are jealous that you didn't get to ask your own questions and want to participate in the future, please go to my Substack, .substack barryweiss.substack.com, to subscribe. Okay, really short break, and then we'll get right into it. I hope you enjoy it.
1: You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where we expose how patent trolls shake down innocent victims using legal loopholes and abuse of the system.
2: Hello, I notice you've been sued for patent infringement. I'd be happy to represent you for a price. Just remember, your defense cost is going to run around $3 million. Wow. The patent we were sued on had, as I recall, 113 claims. And every claim was almost the same. In other words, one claim would say, a computer accessing another computer to unlock software. And the next thing would be, software unlocked by one computer accessing another computer. That was just the same thing over and over 113 times, phrased a little bit differently each time. Since it took us four years and $2 million to overturn one of those sentences,
1: they could put us through this for the rest of our lives. For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show.
0: Common Sense Community, thank you so much for being here. I know that I am really eager to have this conversation because I feel like there's so many questions that I'm confused about or policies I'm frustrated about. And I really can't think of any three people better situated to answer my questions and yours than the three doctors on the screen right now. Dr. Vinay Prasad is an associate professor of epidemiology at UCSF. Dr. Stefan Baral is a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, and Dr. Lucy McBride, who hopefully you saw on CNN over the weekend, is a practicing internist in Washington, D.C., a mental health advocate, and the author of a popular COVID-19 newsletter. The reason that I invited the three of them here is each of them has stood out to me in their writings, in their speaking, even on insane platforms like Twitter for bringing sanity and sobriety to our increasingly hysterical age and I'm so excited to talk to them. Okay, so let me let me set the stage here. By my semi-official count, we are 2 weeks and 2 years into flattening the curve on the COVID-19 pandemic and I am personally done. You know, for the first year and a half of that chunk of time, I was Good. I was a compliant. I might have even been a poster child. And I did every part of it. I I binged Tiger King. I walked 10,000 steps a day. I listened to every Sam Harris podcast. I downloaded the meditation app. I adopted the dog. I resented the dog. Now I love the dog. And I did every official stage of it too, right? I wore the mask, sometimes even two of them. I shipped N95 masks because Friends in China told us this was coming. We got these masks in January. I shipped them to friends with compromised health. I sprayed down groceries. Like I actually remember spraying down a can of Pringles with disinfectant. I've had so many PCR tests. I can't count them. I've canceled plans. I did the six feet. I stayed home. And of course, I got the life-saving vaccine the moment I could. But I have hit a wall. And I feel like every time I'm asked to show my vaccine card at a bar, I don't want to do it. When I eat at a restaurant and there are diners there who are unmasked, but the staff is wearing like plastic stormtrooper headgear and gloves, I wonder if people realize what that looks like. And when friends who are more neurotic than me at this point ask me to take an antigen test before we hang out outside, I do it, but only because I'm trying to be a good friend. So those of you who are tuning into this conversation in states like Florida or Texas are probably laughing at what I'm saying and maybe patting yourself on the back for your wise geographic choices in life. And I get it. Um, But for many of us in America, our lives are still being controlled by the pandemic. And I think the irrationality of some of the COVID policies, irrationality that's coming from our public health authorities, from our schools, from our workplaces, from places we're supposed to trust, including the media, is making skeptics of even the most compliant So I want to start there. After two grueling years of restrictions, I think it's becoming clear that people have had enough, that they feel the way I do. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that as well from your vantage points as doctors. Has there been a damn breaking moment? And if so, where would you locate it? Maybe let's start with you.
1: Yeah, I think many people are sympathetic to what you're saying. And I'll just tell you a quick anecdote. I am here in San Francisco, which is the most compliant place, perhaps in this country. And when I step outside, I see 70% outdoor masking, even today. I got in my car recently. I drove outside the city. One hour out, dropped to 30 percent. Two hours out, drops to 10 percent. Three hours out, I was in a Target and I went in the store. People were staring at me because I was the only one wearing the mask. I said, listen, people, I'm actually quite critical of the evidence base for this cloth mask anyway. So don't don't hold it against me. But I think, you know, what you say resonates with a lot of people who feel like um, they did what they needed to do. Um, They did everything they were supposed to to do. And now in the face of Omicron, I think truly it changes everything. So one of the things you alluded to was what sense does it make, or it doesn't feel right to you that you have to keep showing your passport. I would argue that that policy is no longer valid. Um, The vaccine effectiveness, Again, severe disease is great, and that's been preserved. But for symptomatic disease, it's not as good as we would like with Omicron, even boosting. And so I think that whole idea that we would show this card and by virtue of us showing the card that it's going to be a safe space in the restaurant, that idea is increasingly untrue. Um, that we may all and we all will be exposed to Omicron showing that card is a theater that's not going to change that future. So I think you're right. That's the pulse of where I think America is. I think it's not what some liberal cities are doing, Um, and it is actually increasingly borne out by the evidence in this um, strain of the virus.
0: I think a lot of people feel this way. That I know, they feel like some of the rules are nonsensical or irrational, but they don't want to say anything. And the reason they don't want to say anything is because they don't want to be called anti-vaxxers. They don't want to be accused of denying the science. They don't want to be accused of, you know, being a Trumper, whatever it is. Do you think that's accurate? And I'm also curious in your experience as doctors and as professors who have sort of dissented from, let's call it the group think of much of the medical establishment. I'm curious about what the cost has been for you. So maybe uh, Dr. McBride, if we could start with you on that one. Sure. I just want to go back to your opening
3: Monologue, Barry, where you talked about how people are done. The point I want to make to you is is is, is probably obvious, but I think you're right. I think people are exhausted. They they are wired and tired. You know, they, the adrenaline and cortisone have been coursing through people's veins for 22 months. You know, we went through this sort of panic period, right, in March, April, May, where. Um, it was sort of the hair on fire days of the pandemic, you know, remember when we had to ration toilet paper, I remember my dad dropping off a roll of toilet paper in front of my house and like running away. (laughs) Um, and and yes, like wiping down, you know, milk cartons and, and all of that. Um, and then we settled into the summer and we thought maybe things would be better. And then, you know, anyway, fast forward to 22 months later, I think what I'm seeing in my patients, because I see patients every day in my primary care practice is that people have been. Very careful I'm in washington d c which is again a highly vaccinated place majority of my patients are vaccinated um, and they're they're exhausted from vigilance they're exhausted from the physical vigilance it takes to 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 do all the things you have to do from from you know masking and um, getting tested and and then they're exhausted emotionally they're mentally burnt out and what I'm also noticing is that they're they're frustrated that acknowledging that they're done, or th- th- they feel bad, they feel guilty, they feel ashamed that, that, that somehow that would yes. be screwed as, I don't care about other people. I mean, I am a firm believer that people are born with good intentions. We are born, you know, kind and, um, you know, care for our neighbors. Um, it's confusing for people that wanting to, for example, send your kid back to school wanting to resume normalcy, being exhausted, that is not the same as being uncaring about other people. It means you're human. I say this to people all the time in my office. It's not because you're crazy. It's because you're human. I'm not recommending therapy because you're insane. I'm recommending therapy because you and your husband have been quarreling and you're having a tough time in your marriage because of this stressful time. Again, people are human and we have fuses and people are really really worn out from vigilance and then the hyper vigilance emotionally self-taxing um i went to medical school to follow facts to you know seek the truth i think all of us did i mean i don't know anybody who went to medical school i mean i guess there was one person in my class who like their dad made them go to medical school but that person's probably not in medicine anymore um but we all went to help people right to 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 meet people where they are to help people understand the nuances of their unique health conditions, marry that with broad, um, you know, data and evidence. Um, and so it's funny to me that I, as what I consider a moderate in terms of, you know, weighing risks and benefits and harms against, you know, and then looking at, at at the the human condition as a set of problems that we can't solve, we can only you know, mitigate risk, we can't eliminate it. It's funny to me that I sometimes am looked at as this extremist. Um, It's hard, but at the same time, it's like I teach my kids. If you can't speak your mind and, you know, grapple with hard issues and have nuanced conversations with people you disagree with, which I'm I'm trying to do
0: publicly and privately, um, then what are we really here for anyway? Do you guys know doctors who feel the way that you do or public health officials, let's say, who... Say to you in private, thank you so much for what you're saying in private, but I can't do it. Yes. I, I'm wondering if if one of you, all three of you, tell us a little bit about that. Maybe, Steph, it's a good time to bring you in.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think many, and I, I can imagine it's the same for other folks. I think I've not, it, throughout my career, aimed to sort of play a public role uh, in terms of, like, science communication. I think there's a lot of wonderful people who do that. Uh, my goal has always been kind of like you know writing papers, going to conferences, trying to do like real world programs and whatnot in, in different settings, and then evaluate them. But it's interesting now. Obviously, I've played a more public role here, sitting on a podcast and 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 having these conversations. But I've had a lot of emails and messages, so you know from like really high level folks and and are pretty early on, and and strikingly high level folks that I'd engage with peripherally throughout my work over, over the, over the years being like, I think what you're doing is great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. Kind of, I wouldn't want to be doing it, but kind of keep at it. Know that you haven't gone crazy. Cause I think a big thing for me was like, you know, we were as Lucy was, and as Vinay was like reflecting on like the early days of this and, and just like how disconnected I was, even from sort of like lockdown mentality actually just like from this the whole idea from the beginning and we're all doing it reflecting our experiences my experience was like I provide in-person care in shelter settings I was out there working like all of the recommendations being made none of them fit all of the folks that we were trying to serve like there wasn't a single recommendation that was like made sense either for the staff who continued to have to work in person so they needed to use transit to get there and they (laughs) all of those things or and uh, it definitely didn't work for the clients who are living in there and, you know, being told to isolate and, and, and really not having the space to do that. So I think, you know, I, 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 I sort of took on this role of like asking some of these questions. And indeed, I think a lot of folks have, who are very traditional public health leaders, in fact, like, you know, high level folks, leaders saying like, you're not crazy, you're, you're doing okay, kind of keep at it and play this like science communication role. And, and so that I think I've done that because there's surely been enough folks on the other side that have been like you're not, you're not, you're, you're feeding into a, like the Koch brothers conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. Like you're, you don't know that you're feeding a right-wing conspiracy, but you are. And your lack of, of sort of your your inability to reflect on advancing that conspiracy shows that you just don't have the insight to be involved. It is like these amazing comments from these folks of just like how these folks who have never talked to me, never engaged with me, like will write me these messages, scientists, physicians, others, and, and and very harsh. but, But like I said, really counterbalanced by a like working folks side by side for now two years. Um, and and knowing that I'm not going crazy because I'm trying to reflect what's happening in, in real world settings outside of people's homes. Uh, and then also, as you noted, like leaders in public health saying like, you're okay.
0: I want to get to some practical questions in about five, 10 minutes. Cause I think that's why a lot of people showed up tonight. Before we do, I, I want to stick on the question that, this conversation leads me to the question of sort of um, epistemic closure or groupthink among people who are meant to be um, our trusted health authorities. And this, there's a broader conversation to be had, of course, which we're trying to do actively on common sense about the crisis of legitimacy. Who can we trust? And, you know, I don't think there's been anything more alarming to me than feeling like oh my God, can I not trust what the CDC tells me? Can I not trust what public health authorities tell me? And a breaking point moment for me was in the summer of 2020. And you guys will know what I'm talking about, where the whole idea was the good moral decision was to stay at home, except if you were protesting on behalf of the right cause. I would love for you guys to reflect on the crisis of legitimacy. Should people even trust the CDC at this point? And How do we regain that trust? A few minutes before I came on here with you guys, I noticed that one of the most prominent newspapers in Denmark put out a big editorial under the headline, we failed. In other words, they were apologizing for the fact that rather than doing good journalism, they were just echoing um, governmental messaging on the virus. And I thought I was shocked by that and refreshed. I was like, wow, you you never see that from institutions. So talk to me a little bit about the crisis of public trust in these important institutions and, and how we can build back some of that. Vinay, maybe let's start with you.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think really think you're onto something. I mean, you know, you as much as anyone else have been talking about, I think, some of the themes in the academy and in the elite cultures that are corrosive, the illiberalism that's been growing, the cancel culture theme, um, this increasing sort of strong Um, views on certain sides of the political spectrum that intersected with COVID-19 precisely as you describe, which was that the mantra was, you know, do it, stay in your house unless, of course, you're at the right protest. There was the wrong protest, too. It was in Sturgis, the motorcycle rally. That's the wrong protest to be at. But there were the right protests. And actually, my my sympathy as somebody who was left of center is that that is an important cause. But it did illustrate, I do think, sort of a double standard in the public health community. And I guess early on in this pandemic, I was very worried and I wrote about it Um, with the former dean of Harvard Medical School and Stat, that politics and science will become increasingly intertwined and make it tougher and tougher. And on every issue, the worst has come to pass. Pills, hydroxychloroquine became right of center and ivermectin is right of center. Non-pharmacological interventions like masking and N95s are extremely left of center. And we have had a wedding of politics, naked politics and tribalism to SARS-CoV-2 politics. And that has put us in a tough situation now. So that sensible middle ground you're talking about is something that is antithetical, I think, to some people who believe that we can still eradicate the virus if we were to do the right things. Um, To some degree, it takes on sort of the properties of a religious fervor. Um, You know, it's the unvaccinated, the bad people. They're the almost second class citizens. Um, and I, I mean, I really think you're onto something. It was, it was a bad timing culturally. We were in a bad place, um, unable to tolerate open dialogues with other people, and that's why I think all three of us, to some degree and different degrees, we've gotten our fair share of secret fan mail and public hate. You know, and that's often the situation you find yourself when you're trying to push a center, common sense, middle ground on a lot of these issues: secret fan mail and public hate. And I, I so I, I resonate. That resonates with me. But I think you're onto something.
0: Lucy or Steph, do you want to take that? So you
3: asked who do you trust. So to me, it's not one person, but the, the ingredients to the person or institution I trust is someone who, as you said, acknowledges they're not always right and, and, and admits mistakes, um, who is, you know, of course, honest and following facts um, and who communicates transparently and clearly. And unfortunately, while I want every success for Rochelle Walensky and I want the CDC to be successful and they've had successes. Um, They have unfortunately not been that transparent with their messaging and they have unfortunately not said, you know what, we should have said X or this changed. They haven't been transparent as things have shifted. Now we are living through, you know, a, a crisis that is changing second by second. So it's impossible for her to message a broad country where half the people think COVID is a hoax, and the other half is in N95s, you know, worrying about getting COVID despite being triple vaxxed um, and outdoors. So, how can you message that group? And 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 and. But but I, I do think that the CDC and other uh, major organizations could be more nuanced with their messaging. Um, and and I think that we've lost trust in the vaccines, unfortunately, as a result. I think. Um, there was so much, and, and I admit that I was more gung-ho about the vaccines. I thought the vaccines were going to be more effective against, you know, the the, the subsequent variants than they were. I mean, the vaccines still are effective. They aren't though, as I originally said, they're not great at preventing infection and they're not great at preventing transmission. And I think that The more we can be transparent with people, because ultimately the the public is pretty smart and pretty savvy, and they can smell when people are hiding the truth, just like human beings can, I think that that would engender a lot of trust if they were more transparent. Um, And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I've been writing this newsletter about COVID since March 2020, and it was really born out of necessity to, to, to reach my patients when I couldn't answer the phone fast enough to answer everyone's questions was really to help people navigate a complex time because it's, we are living in this trust desert. People don't know who to trust. They don't know, should they trust the politician, the guy on TV? Um, and then remember, 80 million Americans and probably more don't have a primary care doctor. They don't have a medical home, a hub for problem solving, a place where they can talk about their anxiety and their um, COVID tests. They don't know where to go. And so I think a lot of us are talking publicly because people don't know who to trust. And so that's, that's what I'm seeing in the public space. And I'm seeing even people who do have a primary care like me, they still are confused. They're getting mixed messages um, everywhere they turn. So, one of the ways I help people with their anxiety is to turn the media down. Of course, not this podcast, because that would be foolish, but, but to, 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 to prune their media and, and make sure they're getting facts over fear.
2: Can I just add one thing about CDC? Because I think it's, you know, the CDC historically, has been the lead public health agency in the context of public health emergencies of international concern. These FIICs, so obviously, as COVID is, and they had a framework in there called the Stark Framework. Like it's like simple, timely, accurate, relevant, credible, and compassionate. And and that was their like kind of like emergency communications framework. And it's what we teach for emergency communications. Um, it, it's a great framework. It's been used in H one N one. I think what happened here and we, by the way, this, it wasn't new to this. We saw it a little bit for H1N1. We saw it definitely for uh, Ebola. It, it it evolved for Zika. And I think now we're like living it in, in, the, in the clearest ways for, for COVID is like, it's not clear who's in charge. Like you start having a task force. We had obviously a COVID task force led by ambassador Burks. Um, you know, it's not part of the CDC it's disconnected from local public health agencies. I believe like if we'd gone back, if you'd looked at like the, the the response from SARS Part 1 in 2003, even H1N1, it was much more clear that like CDC was a lead agency. NIAID did, you know, you know the NIA, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases does things like develop vaccines and does all the research and all that. And that's obviously led by Dr. Fauci and uh, under the NIH umbrella. But it's like it was much clearer. Like the CDC does the public health work. They liaise with local public health agencies. They communicate, develop guidance, they fund, they provide technical support. But like here, I, I never knew who was in charge. Like I don't, and I still to this day, and I, I trained in public health, I work in public health. Like I don't know is it the White House? Is it the CDC? Is it NIAID? Is it the task force? Do we still have a task force? Is it the transition team? So part of it, I think, what when Lucy talks about these challenges in like consistency, because consistency is important. It's hard to be consistent when you have a lot of changing information. But but to but in order to at least do that is have like a consistent messenger, and 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 really have some compassion in that messaging. And I think because the CDC, I think, didn't get to play that role, like. I, I think, you know, I, I just because I know of Dr. Walensky as this incredible scientist, incredibly compassionate person. I might be a little bit, you know, it just that's my my understanding of her. And, and uh, for, for many years before she took on this role. But it's to say that, like she came out, for example, around very pro school as she came into this role. And then it clearly immediately the White House shut that down. And then she's like, no, school's so there was this, I think that what we're seeing is like, I don't think we've gotten to see, for example, even Dr. Walensky play the role of this incredible physician and incredible scientist, you know, and 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 within the absence of this incredible political role. And even though I, I am, I think, similar to, as Vinay was saying, like left of center and supportive, it, it's hard to see politics guiding what should really be an empiric sort of public health driven response. So thanks.
0: You bring up schools. I want to talk about kids, starting with college kids and sort of going down to preschool and a few questions, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience. I think that the effect that this pandemic and the lockdown policy has had on kids is probably the most morally urgent issue. Um, And so let's start with college and where we know that is. Should college students who are fully vaccinated be asked to wear masks Or have remote learning, as many of them have been doing over the past few weeks and obviously the past two years. At this point, is there any credible public health justification for that policy?
1: I'll take this because I feel strongly. The answer is no. I mean, they should be not subject to uh, any restrictions. First of all, most colleges that I'm aware of have had, and Lucy can talk about her son in a second. um, mandates for vaccination mandates for boosting many of these kids have already also had omicron and cleared it they are healthy 20 year olds they are the lowest of low risks in society they should be allowed to return to normal life as much as possible um i think many people the, the argument I hear for why they should be subject to, and, and these are really the most draconian restrictions, because you talked about masking, but it's more than that. In many colleges, they're not allowed to leave their rooms, or they're not allowed to get together. Um, they can be expelled for uh, for violating these protocols. They're not allowed to eat together. They're not allowed to take off their mask to share a meal with other people. These are restrictions that no one else outside of these narrow insular pockets are following. So we have 99.9% of America not doing these things, and 0.1% percent, the healthiest one 0.1%, the most vaccinated and well-educated point 0.1%. they have to abide by the strictest rules. I think it, it doesn't make sense. And if you wanted to understand it, I think the only way to understand it is from a legal liability framework from the people who run the colleges or perhaps they're trying to appease um, the parents and donors. But regardless, it doesn't make sense from any public health standpoint. And I think it's indefensible and should be done away with I
3: I agree. And I the way I think about health, the way that I'm, I'm quite sure of, and I and, and Stephan think about health, is that that you know we are the complex sum of various components, right? We are you know the the combination of our lived experiences, our socioeconomic status, our emotional health, our genetics, our physical health, right? We are we have we have broad human needs. We have unique vulnerabilities as individuals. And we face many threats from, you know, climate change to driving in cars. The driving in cars analogy always gets me in trouble, but I'll just say it anyway. Um, and then, so, 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 so the goal in, in, in my job as, a, as someone who sees patients individually one-on-one is to help them, again, not try to eliminate risks because that's impossible, but rather to mitigate it, to arm them with the tools that they need to manage the everyday risks that they face. Because life is risky. And there's harms, potential harms everywhere. So when you think about a college student, for example, you know, it's essential to think about what are their broad human needs and what are their risks. And when you look at the data on, you know, healthy, vaccinated uh, adolescents or or young adults, um, you know, they're in the, the lowest risk category for severe consequences. And then they're at the highest risk at that age for social isolation, depression, anxiety, suicidality, and take away even landing in the ER for a suicide attempt, just loneliness, blues, you know, the lack of connection with peers, which is, you know, of course, why do you go to college? To learn a couple of subjects, but you also go to to grow your, your critical thinking skills, to bounce yourself off of people who are not like you and who, who don't look like you. Um, and so... To deprive children and, and young adults of that experience when their risk, even without the vaccine, is not terribly high, and then with the vaccine is so minuscule low. It's just, it just it, it reflects the absence of critical thinking, or as Benai said, because I can't explain it either, some other, you know, goal that, that I just can't understand as, as a parent, as a physician, as someone who believes in in treating the whole person and that mental and physical health are
0: inseparable. There are a lot of parents I know who were forced to go and scramble to get their kids a PCR test or a, an at-home test so that they could return back from winter break. And these are little kids, okay, between the ages of, we're talking middle school, elementary school, high school. Vinay, you had a piece out today basically arguing that routine testing in schools should be done. We shouldn't be doing it anymore. Um, I'm wondering if, you guys can can address that. And the the broader question that I'm getting from a tremendous number of parents who are in this is those of those parents who are here whose kids are being forced to test routinely to mask in schools, even though many of them are eligible now for vaccines and are vaccinated, how do they communicate effectively with school administrators and officials who are enforcing policies that they view and maybe science views as irrational.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we're getting to a moment where they're going to have to, the administration is going to have to go one direction or the other. Just today, I saw two different headlines. One, Tony Fauci saying that we will all in a very short time be exposed to this virus. And the best thing you can do when you meet it is to be vaccinated. And I also saw a headline that said the Biden administration considering mailing everyone N95 masks. There's a little bit of a schizophrenia there because the N95 may merely delay the inevitable that he's talking about here. My personal view is that... We can't bring Delta-level thinking to Omicron. It's spreading too quickly. The vaccine effectiveness for mild symptoms is too low. It cannot be contained. So it will spread. It will spread through children. They will encounter it. So what we need to do is have policies that least disrupt the lives of these people, children whose lives have already been horrendously disrupted for two years. And that means, I think, don't test asymptomatic kids. Don't cancel class if kids are asymptomatic. I saw a professor in Pittsburgh today just say, All the kids' schools or classes, all the kids feel fine, but they're testing positive. That, to me, is a policy that's merely treating the test and not treating the person in front of you. You need to mitigate the harms when they are to appear. But the truth is, any child five and up who wishes, and with the parents' wish, can get vaccinated right now. And the risks to those kids are already very low and lower than other risks they face, including the risk of suicide and mental health problems, the risk of homicide. Someone tweeted last year at every age, kids have more homicides, deaths than they did from COVID-19. COVID-19 is a risk to kids, no doubt about it. It's not zero, but it's on par with other things that we don't halt their whole lives for. And so I think right now, the important thing is to get them back in school, to take off their masks. I think enough is enough. They have a chance. People want to be vaccinated, be vaccinated. Um, to not test people who don't need to be tested if they don't, if they feel fine and to move forward with life and try to rebuild what has been fractured, which is one year of two years of lost youth.
0: Steph, we were talking before about how you're a new parent. I'm curious how you think about this question or how you would think about it if you have school age children.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what I would say is that um, in looking at the data very early, it became clear that unlike, for example, H1N1 that did you know worse for younger people who hadn't been exposed to the 1976 uh, epidemic or the one in the 50s kids were doing better here. That was, that was abundantly clear. It was abundantly clear, obvious, and it was obvious early. And like, it was like, like we should have all gotten down on the ground and thanked whatever you believe in, if you believe in anything, it's just like, it's a miracle. You know what I mean? Like that, that was the case. And I just remember um, just, just feeling like, okay, like no matter what's happening, like, because we're both like, both of us are are, are in-person providers. We've been providing in-person care throughout. And it's like, just to think like, the kids, our kids are sick. Like that is like just this wonderful thing. It's, you know, and and I think one of the challenges almost throughout is, is this sort of a lack of, of like adaptivity in our interventions. So, you know, this idea that like everybody should be treated the same because the reality is like, in some ways when you talk about, you know, it's like almost like a dirty word, but I'm going to say comorbidity is, you know, when somebody has a comorbidity, that is not to say that like. Obviously, their life is worth any less. But it is to say that if you're the parent of a child with a comorbidity, that you may pay particular attention to that child's needs in a way that a kid that like, doesn't have those issues, or if you have two kids, for example, one with, one without, you might pay particular attention to the one that may be immunocompromised for any number of reasons. And, and you, you might treat that child differently in the day-to-day life. Trying to plan everything around the needs of, of, of kids that are particularly at risk makes it really difficult because it's hard to plan public health programs for the middle. I think one anecdote that I think is is worth sharing, it didn't get a lot of attention in the States, but I I think it's very reflective of this issue about sort of kids and their risk was in Alberta, there was a a tragic story, a 14 year old that had brain cancer and uh, was was sick with brain cancer for about nine months and then uh, tested positive for COVID in the last few days, probably acquired COVID in the hospital and and died. And it's a, it's just a tragedy. And immediately, um, you know, the medical officer of health in Alberta tried saying, like, this is a kid that had comorbidities. It's not the average 14 year old. Your average 14 year old is safe. This child was was sadly at risk and and sadly succumbed. And um, and and, the peop- and a lot of people attacked them immediately. Like, How dare you devalue this life? This is a, a covid killing a child amazingly the parents then and then so then the the, the medical officer of health apologize i just want to sort of share how like what their lives are like so then then she immediately apologizes to all these folks then the parents of the child who just died say how dare you devalue this experience of brain cancer because our child died of brain cancer he lived with brain cancer and he fought brain cancer and he died of brain cancer and how dare you count it devalue and call it covid and so there's just to say that there's this incredible tension, and I worry that like when we when we relent to sort of online mobs that are so disconnected from what's actually happening, we're actually devaluing some of these experiences that kids have. And so so what does that mean? It just means that like absolutely schools should be open. I think we've I don't know why we've felt the need to like take this out on kids when every pandemic preparedness plan always had that schools were the last to close and the first to open. That is fundamentally the case. So when people say that Sweden was out there, I grew up in Sweden all my family's there. So when people say that like Sweden's gone wacky, I remember talking to my friends in March, 2020, and they were like, they don't have a nanny culture the way that we do in North America. And so there's no, there's no like, abundance of nannies taking care of all these kids. They're in they're in kindergarten and they're in school. It's all, you know, all public and all, all public at that. And so they were just like, if they close these schools, like the only thing these are these are doctors, nurses providers, folks I grew up with. the only people I could rely on were their parents. They were like, if they closed them, the only thing I can do if I want to continue being a doctor in person is ask my parents to take care of these kids, which is fundamentally worse than anything else you'd want to do so i, I just i find it I find it really like incredible on a number of reasons the, the last one I'll also say is that we also lost a lot of staff whenever you close a school. For parents who work in person, I'm not talking about doctors now who can like pay for a part time teacher would do whatever because there's more financial flexibility. But I mean, somebody who works, whether they they drive a garbage truck or they pump gas or they work at the grocery store or whatever they do, you've taken them. Either they stay home and don't go to their job, which is is what it is. Or, they, they, or the kid, I, I don't know what the kid does. You know what I mean? Like there's no thought to them. We've only planned it around these folks who have like extra space in their homes, high-speed internet, laptops and in the like. So I think I think it what it, it is, it just feels like we haven't thought through any of this in any way. So absolutely. And, and this was, it was, it, the last thing I'll say is that it it's notable because people had before us. This was all really well articulated in these plans. None of which we decided to use. We just kind of threw it up and we're like, Let's rewrite the book now in the context of an emergency, which is a terrible idea.
0: So in the post I wrote announcing this event, I mentioned, and this is true, and I debated sharing it, that on New Year's Eve, I hosted, my wife and I hosted two friends, one was my sister, who had tested positive for, for covid Um, and had extraordinarily mild colds. And they were on maybe day six or day seven of of having COVID. Um, But it seemed like a cold that we were calling COVID. And they were going to be alone for New Year's. And they were sad. And we told them, come over. And they sat on the other side of the table. And we had air filters going and the windows open. And you know, a friend of mine told me that her mom read that and was upset, and she felt it was irresponsible for me to do it. Doctors, and there are three of you, did I make a foolish choice? Am I crazy? Um, should I be reprimanded in the same way I'd be reprimanded if I had my druthers and had french fries every day?
2: Well, but would anybody reprimand you for having french fries publicly every day?
0: Not publicly, but my doctor definitely would. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's notable, right? That like, we, we don't actually around a series of choices. So my mom is alone in Sweden. All her kids are in Canada and the States and she was going to be alone. And her friend uh, was sick with a, with a cold and was waiting for a test, but the test wasn't going to come back until after uh new year's and she was going to stay home alone. And I'm like, you're, you're boosted. That is a terrible idea for you to sit home alone you know, when you're hanging out with your friend. And, and so I, I posted that as well, because it was just so many people are like, I'm going to tell my parents to stay home and sit down and hunker down. And I'm like, I'm not like, first of all, we, we hosted people too, but, but I similarly told my mom, I'm like, you know, she's, she's not young and she's, she has other comorbidities, but I'm like, the risk of you having something serious from COVID with when you're boosted is so low that the, like the bus ride on the way to see your friend is a higher risk activity than you guys actually socializing for a little. And by the way, as, as we all know, like being lonely, especially on like very social nights, that sucks. And you remember that. And so it, it, like, I absolutely like, I never judge anybody's behavior. Like as long as it's consensual and doesn't hurt him, you know, it doesn't hurt people who don't want to engage in it consensually, but it, but it's also the case that like, I think those are extraordinarily safe things to do and that, that folks are able to judge, like, what is safe and what is not safe in a much more nuanced way than clearly I think a lot of physicians and a lot of, like, epidemiologists and, and modelers particularly have given them credit for.
3: And that's one of the things I've seen absent in the in the conversation about COVID, Barry, is because, you know, I get questions every day from patients like, can I do this? Can I – is it safe to do X? Um, And and my job isn't to tell people yes, no, yes, no, it's rather to give them the information and and to frame the decision, to talk about, again, you know, that every decision has potential upsides and downsides, um, but that, you know, what's right for you may may not be right for someone else, and and also to remind people that they have varying needs. But I would say pretty much, you know, unilaterally, even though I just said I, I wouldn't speak for other people, that I think that your decision on New Year's Eve is completely appropriate, the fact that we would shame anybody for for hanging out with a loved one on New Year's Eve when you're doing everything you can under your control, but without depriving yourself the pleasure of seeing a loved one, that seems reasonable to me. So I will say to patients, you know, here's what I would do if you're interested. Um, I don't always say that because it's not really my my job to tell people how I do things. It's rather to arm them with the tools and information they need to make their own decision. Um, But I think that's one of the problems we've 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 faced in the public dialogue about COVID is is that risk is relative, um, and benefits are relative. So one person may value this activity over that activity, and 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 we need to be able to make those decisions for ourselves. I think you know telling people what to do, do this, don't do that, and then shaming them for not doing the thing you told them to do is, is a recipe for disaster. For me to get someone to affect behavioral change, like lose weight, leave an abusive marriage, you know, quit drinking, start exercising, or to make a healthy decision, like get vaccinated. I don't shame. It doesn't, even if I wanted to shame them, which I don't want to, it it just doesn't move the needle. Shame and fear are not motivating. They just make people feel ashamed and afraid.
0: I think one of the things people are wondering, and I see someone in the comments saying that they're 74, they're boosted, they have the vaccine and they just tested positive and they're ecstatic because they can go on with their life. I think that's the question a lot of people are thinking. I am still negative, even though I clearly have done everything wrong over the past few weeks. And, you know, is there any logic to that into, you know, now we have this variant that seems sort of like a natural gift in a way that it's a lot less lethal. You know, is it a is it a, is it a crazy thing for people to want to get the virus, Vanai?
1: Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's, it's well put. Um, I guess I think like we just have to talk about the reality of this virus. This this is going to be a circulating endemic coronavirus. It's not going to go away. It's going to be intertwined with human beings for a thousand and ten thousand years from now. We just met it two years ago. And what that means is realistically for those of us who are young and plan on living many more decades is we are going to infect it not just once more in our lives, but probably multiple more times. And thankfully, it'll be probably milder each additional time. And then the question is, well, when do you want to meet the virus? And I think that although, you know, you can try to push it out as far as possible, there are at least some theoretical reasons why after your last vaccine, before the last antibody, you know, the last antibody is sort of declined in your bloodstream, you know, you might meet it. And under those circumstances, you might have a milder experience and have a little bit more immunity for the Next time you meet it, hopefully a few years from now. But the reality is, we can't live our life around not encountering it repeatedly. We're going to. And so, you know, I also support what you did. And I think maybe you need a new sort of mental framework. And the framework is if you would have done it three years ago. And it wasn't coronavirus, but, it you know, you're all vaccinated. So, you know, it's sort of the analogy kind of holds. And it's your sister who's recovering day six from having the flu. Would you have had her over on New Year's Eve? And I think a lot of us would have, of course. Six days later, yeah, you're not in the worst of it. Come on over. I'll take a little bit of a risk um, because it's your sister. And, you know, and those things matter. And, you know, I'm seven years in practicing oncology and I've taken care of people post bone marrow transplant who are some of the most vulnerable people and I will tell you people will tell you um you know I'm going to go to my grandson two-year-old birthday party there's going to be 20 kids there in the height of flu season and and you're and they're literally they're as immunosuppressed as it gets and I'm like well you know and they're like what do you think doc is it is it safe and I was like well you know there's there's a real risk you might get something you know and it's going to be really severe since you have almost no immune system and they said you know what doc I'm not living for staying home. I'm living for going to this. And so they go. And it's not my bus- It's no one's business to judge those sorts of choices. We've always made them and we will always make them.
0: After the break, we're going to talk about comorbidities, whether or not kids should get boosters, why COVID is going to be with us probably for tens of thousands of years, and the truth about ivermectin. Stay with us. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you Unpacking Israeli History, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide packs in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so I'm going to go through as many of these questions as I can, and let's try and do one doctor per question as short as possible, just so I can honor as many questions as I can. Um, Donna, speaking, I think, for a lot of parents on here, it's very simple. Should I vaccinate my, in her case, 11-year-old? But a lot of parents saying, should I vaccinate my 8-year-old, 7-year-old, 6-year-old? Lucy, do you want to take that? Sure. The first thing I would say is, is of course, talk
3: to your trusted pediatrician because there's no substitute for you know, nuanced advice from your primary care provider. Um, but the answer is, I, I would yes, because when you when you vaccinate your child, you take, as our friend Monica Gandhi says, you take the claws and the fangs away from the virus. Which, by the way, for most healthy children, aren't even there in the first place. But you never know. And we also have abundant evidence, and we look at the world world stage to
0: see that the vaccines are extraordinarily safe in the 5- to 11-year-olds. So I would vaccinate. My best friend's mother, Wendy Shaw, is asking, and lots of other people ask this too, does COVID-19 pose a serious risk to pregnant women? And another related question is, um, is it dangerous for women who are pregnant and vaccinated to get the booster? Benai?
1: I I mean, I guess I would say that... um... You know, I uh, I think uh, we, we do now have a, a really broad study of the vaccine in pregnant women, and it appears that there's no increased risk of miscarriage, but that's the first two doses. And I think the question of if you're pregnant, you know, and you had two doses a while back, pregnancy is more of a risk factor than not being pregnant, all things being the same. So I think that has to be stated. But the question is, should you get boosted? When should you get boosted? What trimester should you get boosted? I think that's a good question for your individual doctor. And I remember listening to your podcast, Barry, with Marty, and you talked about your producer. Your producer was somebody young, fit, had already had two shots, was struggling with this, and they called up, I think, their friend in Boston who said, should I tell you what I'm supposed to tell you or what I actually think? And right. you know, I think that's telling because I, I think you, know, you, you might feel differently. I mean, if you Tell me it's a it's a 27-year-old woman. She had two shots three months ago. She's in first trimester. Am I in rushing to get her boosted? No, you know, put that on the back burner. Maybe before you deliver, if you want, you can pass along some antibodies to the baby. Um, you know, so I really think it's a personalized decision.
0: One quick follow-up to you, Vinay, because I know you've written about this and a lot of parents of boys are asking this. Amy Winter asks, should boys between the ages of 12 and 19 Get boosters, um our schools are mandating them, even though the boys are fully vaccinated. I assume she's worried about myocarditis. Can you address that?
1: Yeah, I think it's an important question, and I think that this is this is one of those spaces where you run the risk of being called anti vax or anti anti you know that there is a real middle ground debate, and just yesterday in the Atlantic. Dr. Paul Offit, the man, his title is director of vaccine communication at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. He invented a vaccine. You know, he invented a vaccine and he has written books on why you should be vaccinated. But Paul Offit in the Atlantic, quote, told his own son who's in his 20s, I would not advise you to get the booster. And that to me says we need to have a more honest conversation. So I think boys 12 to, you know, even 26 healthy boys, um, I think we need to stop mandating boosters. We even need to put a question mark on dose two. Uh, We know from Ontario province, province of Ontario, I hear they don't like to call it Ontario province, province of Ontario, um, that uh, <laughs> that if you delay the second dose further out, you will have a less of a risk of myocarditis. Um, and these are all very sensible strategies, but you're talking about a population at very low risk of bad SARS-CoV-2 outcomes. You're not going to be able to sterilize them. They will be exposed to the virus. What you want to do is lower the risk of hospitalization. The first dose gets you a lot of the benefit. Dose two, dose three, question mark. The timing of it, question mark. I think you got to talk to your doctor, but I absolutely disagree. This is a place of overreach. When you start mandating in the gray zone, when you mandate where Paul Offit, the man who invents vaccines says, I wouldn't tell my own son to do it. I think you have the problem of groupthink and all the things that, you know, you talk about Barry.
2: Just a very quick add on is that I think the argument that a lot of folks will make for the third dose in kids is like, we don't want them to have any onward transmission, but it's like, this is now the change with Omicron is like, that's that's over. That argument doesn't work anymore. With Delta, I, I don't know if it would have worked with Delta because I don't, I mean, I have to say is somebody who spent their life in infectious diseases, like we don't think of a human as a vector of disease. It's not that that has been our framing for COVID throughout. It was never our framing before. Somebody's not of their unmet needs, we address those needs, but you know, there's a lot of framings that we can use when somebody's infected with something, but it's not that they are a vector of disease. And I think that's exactly what's happened here. It's like, well, give them the booster because they don't want to infect their grandma. It's like, but first of all, we just, the, the evidence for that is gone. And so now you're just talking about at the individual level, is like that person going to get additional benefit from the booster? And, and, and there, I don't know of any evidence that says the answer is yes. And I will say that as also working in Ontario clinically, like we were all very supportive of that 16 week window between doses, because it's like, if there is inflammation from the first dose. Just the body heals, give it some time, you know, inflammation will settle down if that's the case. And I think this like aggressive, like people want to accelerate even the third dose. They they want the third dose even faster. And I think it's based on this messaging that they can avoid the infection or avoid onward transmission, which is just not the case.
0: We have a really, really important question here from someone who's anonymous, Um, but writing about an issue that I feel very passionately about and frankly, haven't found a good way to write about yet. Here's the question. I live in Montreal where we currently have a curfew. A QR code VAX passport is required to go to the liquor store. All the restaurants and bars are closed. All non-essential businesses are closed on Sundays. Yesterday, the Quebec government announced a tax on people who aren't vaccinated. I have three doses of Moderna and I am pro-vaccine, but this is beyond restrictive and I don't know what to do. And I feel very concerned um, about the new normal. Um, or the sort of forced new normal that people have adjusted to, um, which I think that question speaks to. I, I'm wondering what you guys think that a person living under that should do. Steph, you're cringing. Yeah, so maybe we I'm go
2: cringing, to no, Only because I'm Canadian. I, I, I wanted to make one clarification, but the tax... Uh, is is like was a may happen like it's not it hasn't been announced they're like maybe okay. we would do this I only it's an important clarification because we've never done anything like that in the context of universal healthcare and actually I don't think we ever will I, I don't think it would stand the test of of any sort of court challenge but that aside I think it's exactly right like our friend I lived in Montreal for a number of years Montreal's like jazz fest comedy fest but you know people drinking in the streets you know they have it's it's a fun town. And I think, and it was the first place in Canada, and in fact, the only place that had a night curfew in place during Wave Two and Wave Three, and very aggressive. I'll note that. And the only people out allowed during that time, notably, were like Uber drivers delivering food to rich people with little like Uber IDs to show that they're out delivering food. They're allowed to go out to deliver food so folks can stay home. So I think there's a few things. One, from Montreal, there was a, a great report, so far preliminary, but I think consistent with what we've seen across Canada. Folks remain unvaccinated are not the like people have this like Trumper mega, you know, type hat wearing person in mind. And it's just not the case that people who remain unvaccinated are folks that are historically disenfranchised, have medical mistrust, have have been on the wrong side of a lot of kind of like social dynamics historically as well as now. And so, you know, I think we have to get very real about who is unvaccinated for the QR code. I'll say it's in the shelter setting, it's very hard for people to do that. You're asking people to not just have the QR code, but to have an ID that matches it. And so people have never had to carry ID to kind of move around and you're excluding folks from what is now a very cold time of year. And, and you're excluding folks from from indoor spaces. And so there's like all of these reasons why these like policies have just gone, are just out of control. And I think part of it is just like the federal government just wanted this of like Jacinda Ardern, like we're hard on the virus, we're taking it seriously there was an, they called an election in the middle of the pandemic to reinforce and they ran on you know their amazing response so there's this whole dynamic of what we talked about earlier with like that it's just it's so political and it's so this sort of like covid zero approach that you get away from like really sensible evidence resource empiric and humane intervention strategies
1: Mary, I just want to add to this because, like, I'm, I'm very concerned about this in the sense that, um, you know, uh, even for people who support it under some settings, what are the limits to the role of the government in declaring emergencies in the future? If we have a bad, if we have a bad flu season, hundred and twenty thousand. A typical flu season is forty thousand deaths. We may have a bad one with eighty thousand, hundred thousand. Who decides what is an emergency? Who decides when the brute force of government can be applied in this way? Are there any checks and balances? Can you suspend commerce? Uh, transportation, assembly. We've already seen censoring of, of what we can talk about. The, you literally were not allowed to talk about the lab leak hypothesis for a year on big tech. Imagine there's some outbreak of something, You're not, and anyone who disagrees with our lockdown, you're not allowed to talk about that. We'll ban that speech. We're going to put tags on your phone. We can track you in ways we've never been able to track before. Um, this is an unprecedented territory that scholars of democracy and public health have to work on together. And I suspect... As we see in Europe, as they enter lockdowns yet again, even after vaccination, I think there must be limits placed on liberal democracy in terms of what can be done. And I think this is an incredible, this is an existential threat to democracy. Um, I don't know who decides when you can lock down and lock down again. If there's a new variant, 10 times less deadly than Omicron, can you still lock down 100 times less deadly? Who decides? And it will inevitably be misused by someone who seeks to put themselves in power.
0: You, you said it better than I could, but but that speaks to sort of my fear and also a, raises a question that I've been thinking about a lot, um, especially, frankly, when it comes to young people and college students who are being robbed of years of life and dating and, and all the things they're supposed to enjoy, which is why are people so compliant? You know, we see some of the footage of protests in places like Europe, um, and it's unclear to me how how big or not big it is, but among those who we think of as being sort of rebellious, right? Think about the 60s and the free speech movement on college campuses. Maybe this is almost
1: a psychological question, but why are people so compliant? One clue is, I've never lived in a culture where someone's tweet when they were 16 is used to deny them a job when they're 27. And so young people are living in a new world where they worry, what will it mean for my future 10 years from now if I am to oppose Yale University or Stanford? Or And 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 and, and the dissent has been squelched. Um, only recently, I've seen some provocative op-eds from some students at University of Chicago, et cetera, um, that actually push back a little bit. But I have been shocked that students are not fighting back harder.
3: Yeah, you you said it better than I would, but that's exactly what I what I what I was going to say is that I think kids are afraid for looking like they are not empathetic to their fellow students or looking like they don't care about their immunocompromised college professor, who by the way is at least in my son's school, which is a progressive and liberal institution in New England. Like they're all mandated to be vaccinated, mandated to be boosted, and they're still remote. So I think you know, a lot of kids, and this is what I'm hearing firsthand in in, in, in my teenage college student um, son and his, his cohort, and in my patients, I see adolescents, is that they're afraid, um, a lot of them of the virus. Like some of those kids walking out of that high school in New York that was all over Twitter were actually afraid of the virus. They, they, they are afraid of getting COVID. Maybe they're immune compromised. Maybe they live with an immune compromised adult, but they're afraid of COVID. Others are victims of, of, of of group think that the virus is more dangerous than um than it actually is in reality and if if adults are victims of group think, then i think uh, adolescents certainly can be too and then i think van is exactly right i think they're afraid of speaking out because who knows what could happen to them what well, there's retribution for these kids um for for pushing against the popular narrative um and and i think it's a really tough spot for young people to be at the moment at the very moment they're supposed to be spreading their wings thinking critically and And, looking beyond um, their their universe into into other spaces and, and it's just tragic. I think it will be
0: absolutely one of the biggest failures of modern time, the, how we've treated kids. A lot of frustrated parents are asking, "How can we communicate and Lucy, you just mentioned your son, so maybe you have experience with this, but how can we communicate effectively with school administrators who, impo- who are imposing restrictions on our kids, not just mask wearing? But things like no talking during lunch. What do you do in that situation? So I'm actually been asked to give a talk to a broad
3: range of administrators and student uh, and, and faculty and um, educators in DC here um, to help them frame risk, to talk about the absolute numbers, like the the current data on Omicron and vaccine efficacy, but also to help people understand how to frame risk, how to, how to, not that these people aren't intelligent or they can't think for themselves, but rather to, um, marry the, 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 data with their everyday life. So to help people understand, for example, that, um, not talking at lunch, not allowing children to talk at lunch or having a face all in one direction during lunch, um, isn't going to make a difference, particularly when they're vaccinated. Um, and it only creates friction between the students and the faculty because there's this whole layer of enforcement that's unpleasant. Um, and it's not doing anything for, for public health or for individual health. Um, and so I think one of the ways we can start to, 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 to move the needle and to, to take a hard right turn on what I think is sort of a psychological shift, not to let it rip. You know we don't care about our neighbors but rather to understanding that we have to live with this virus not that we want to but that we have to figure out ways to mitigate risk without um, losing our ability to live um, is to communicate um, in in smaller forums I mean I think Twitter is is you know it's like a it's like a dog fight um, I'm not sure people are hearts and minds are being changed but hopefully they are maybe um, I think you know like we're doing this podcast hopefully to kind of reach, Um, an audience with a more nuanced discussion. I think, you know, smaller forums where people are free to speak and free to ask questions. I know a lot of these teachers, because I've done this kind of forum before for teachers, helping them sort of tamp down fear and turn the volume up on the facts. Um, You know, a lot of these teachers are afraid to ask questions, um, even to their own doctors, but they're afraid to ask in, in larger forums that, 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 that may appear un, uncaring or, or they may appear too anxious because I think teachers have been blamed
0: for being too worried when some of them aren't worried. They just don't have all the information they need. Several people are asking, I know this is controversial, about the following things. Ivermectin, Dr. Peter McCullough, and Dr. Robert Malone. People wonder, are they legitimate? Are they raising legitimate things? Are they quacks? Is ivermectin real? Is it not? Who dares tread there?
2: I'll take ivermectin. I'll take ivermectin. So, I mean, I don't, you know, I I think that ivermectin is not so dissimilar from hydroxychloroquine or now fluvoxamine, you know, other drugs that like, where they were worthy of investigation. I think that what's, what's notable about, ivermectin is that so i'll just say like i'm of the mindset that i i don't think that it is a miracle drug by any means i don't think that the evidence has borne it out to be a successful drug there were some strange studies that i think people have effectively teased apart as maybe never have happened uh it never made it into our clinical practice guidelines and i and 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 i I don't know uh, what, what you know i've had a lot of these discussions with folks online I just don't think that it was like um, the miracle drug that many of us wanted it to be. It is for other, you know, it it obviously does have a number of functional properties, et cetera. That being said, I also don't know that it's as harmful. (laughs) I think the framing of it as a horse dewormer, all those things was like so painful because again, it just burns trust and it burns credibility because obviously it's a medication used in humans, and, 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 you know, and then again, it, obviously somebody's won and not obviously, but factually somebody's won a Nobel prize for it. So, so these things are facts. It is used in humans. I don't think it's that particularly effective for COVID maybe under some circumstances, maybe if taken, like, you know, I don't know that we have like great trial data. Maybe if like you took it like on the day that you were, cause a lot of these drugs are most beneficial if taken really early, similar to drugs for like, you know, sultama, baritam flu, you know, for influenza, you really have to take them very early and people normally aren't diagnosed early enough for them to have the sort of clinical benefits that you'd expect. So like, maybe it has some benefit. I don't think it has a lot of harm by, by any means. And so I, you know, I think, and I think that all we've did, it's a great example of like, where instead of like engaging with folks about like, you know, Hey, these are the trials. This is what we think. It became this, like, you know, it became something to make fun of people about, Um, to devalue their perspectives, to devalue them. And and in the end, some of these drugs, by the way, like fluvoxamine, seems to be working and seems to be an effective drug. So there's sort of like this drug and and people similarly can't like don't have a a totally clear, you know, kind of mechanism of action for it. And then there's drugs like remdesivir that we like bought all up and really also not that useful of a drug. And so, you know, it's to say like remdesivir was like that was okay to talk about when the data for it were like it's a long story, but the initial, the initial study didn't show a lot of follow-up data. We waited a long time to get anything more than, believe, really, 14- or 28-day data. And by the way, not a great drug. And, and, and then you have ivermectin that like people would talk about and make fun of. So it's, it's in the end, like I don't think it's that great of a drug. I don't think it's a miracle cure. But I think it was just even the way that we engage in our dialogue and our narrative around it made it such that it was very difficult to have those conversations.
0: Do either of you want to comment on Malone or McCullough? If not, I can move on.
1: I guess I'm in a tough position because I'm actually supposed to write or listen to both the three hour podcasts and say what they said right and wrong. I listened a little. And they what were I would... both
0: on, they were both on Joe Rogan, for those who aren't familiar.
1: They're both on Rogan. And I guess, I mean, just one thing on this point is that I think, you know, you, you see that the media leaned into a tribal war with ivermectin. They called what Joe Rogan took, horse Wormer. Of course, he took a human ivermectin. And they do that on purpose because that's what drives ratings by leaning into this culture war. they manufacture that. I listened to McCullough a little bit. I haven't listened to Malone. Some of what he said actually rung true with me, like that there are some of these structural problems in how we handle this pandemic. Um, I, I felt like McCullough, one of his main themes was that, we didn't invest enough in thinking about therapeutics, it, period. And I guess I disagree a little bit because I think we must have run 500, 600, 1,000 randomized controlled trials. So, you know, there was a big interest. And early in the pandemic, if anything, doctors were too exuberant. I mean, people were get, throwing the kitchen sink at patients. Everyone was trying their own cocktail. So I'm not sure I agree with this premise that that wasn't an investment, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put something longer together on this what they got right and what they got wrong.
0: Good question from Jamie. Why do you guys think that from the beginning, public policy or at least public messaging hasn't really acknowledged that COVID risk, and this goes to the comorbidity reference from before, that COVID risk is really different for people of different ages, health, weight, and so on. The data seems to be in the end that this was a pandemic of older people or people of infirm health and the young could have gone on with their lives. I'll add to that question, which is really a statement, if we could rewind the clock, do you think that any kind of lockdowns for the young uh, or for people who are in good health is going to be viewed as sort of a grievous error in time?
1: I mean, I think the the premise is spot on, which is that in biomedicine, when we early on in the pandemic saw that difference in risk, the difference between an 80-year-old's risk of death and an 8 year olds risk of death, if they were to be infected with this virus, it was between 1,000 and 10,000 times different. It's a log-fold gradient. You never see, I mean, it's one of the few, it's the greatest risk factor you've ever seen in anything in biomedicine. The fact that we were unable to leverage that in any policy just speaks to our complete stupidity frankly we did the exact wrong thing with nursing homes we sent people in and as cuomo did like cruise missiles into the nursing home leading to widespread death we didn't protect them like we ought to have Um, meanwhile we subjected young people to draconian restrictions that uh, harmed them more than they helped them very likely but i think the question about lockdowns it's going to be one of the most disputed claims in science in the next 25 years, you're very likely to see hundreds, if not thousands of papers that claim what was the benefit of lockdown? What does it even mean to do a lockdown? You know, a Chinese lockdown is where you weld your door and a U.S. lockdown is something far different. Um, You'll see a huge literature. I suspect it will actually have two different consensus views. There'll be a view that actually said it was the right thing to do under a lot of circumstances and a view that says it was largely wrong. But I do think this person is right that we were not able to leverage age is a failure. There was a group of people who did suggest we could. I think I didn't agree with all of their policies. These are the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. I think Steph and I, we didn't sign it because it didn't have what sort of what we wanted in there. But at the same time, I think they were unfairly maligned and they were they had parts of their proposal to keep schools open and to do more protection at nursing home. But I think a lot of people could have supported. So it was just one of those places where, you know, that was a missed opportunity. I agree with this person.
0: Katie asks this. I live in Chicago and I'm a political moderate. I'm watching a lot of my friends go off the rails and it's impossible to have logical conversations about COVID suggestions. And Steph, maybe let's start with you. Cause I see you wanted to jump in there.
2: Well, I mean, I, you know, it, it's interesting. Cause I think what I worry about um, like I, you know, sort of, you know, I, I I'm a public health practitioner. I trained in public health. I want to keep doing public health. And I don't think of public health in the context of like, like titrating restrictive interventions, right? Like we, we think about like, what are people's needs? And we try to address them. I'll say that the the reason that we didn't leverage age is because of this framing of people are vectors. If you don't address the eight-year-old, you don't prevent eight-year-old, they're going to infect the 80-year-old. And thus, that's why you have to like lock down the eight-year-old as well. And so I think there was this idea of like, we are not paying attention to what different needs were, you know, First of all, uh, you know, we will invariably like reflect our experiences. So historically, pre-March 2020, I traveled like 200 days a year. And like, so in early 2020, in the first three, you know, first two and a half months that were pretty normal, every country I went to and I, you know, multiple continents, you know, more than a dozen countries, there was COVID in that country. So it was just like clear to me. It was Africa, Asia, um, Europe, you know, obviously across North America, there was COVID. So it's like clear like COVID is everywhere. So when we came back, you know, when when, when I ended up and, and landed uh, in, in Toronto specifically, we, you know, it was clear like COVID was gonna come or if it, it, in fact that it was already there, but it was gonna become a pretty big pandemic. And we set up an isolation site um, on like March 12, 2020 uh, for folks experiencing homelessness because we just were like, we were really worried about it in shelters and congregate care. We wanted to get folks out so that because it was taking 10 or 14 days to get a result back at that point. But what I want to reflect on is that I so I carried a pager and we, I was doing all the admissions into the site. And for the, I was getting 60 to 70 calls a day right through the night from discharge planners and emergency rooms. Saying like, listen, I have this person. They're not in the shelter system, but they they say they don't have any space to isolate in their home. They have COVID. They're too well to be admitted. What can you take them? And the answer is no, we can't take them. And so all we did for that person was like send them into their multi generational household to infect everybody, including elderly folks in that household. So the idea being it was like there was things we could have done. Like a lockdown did nothing for them, and the vast majority of those like nothing. It served them no purpose. They continued working and they continued infecting everybody in their household. And so I think that like the framing around lockdowns to me is like we need to be able to have a rational conversation, an pure conversation, as, as Vinay is saying, and, and really study empirically, because I, I think lockdowns are wrong, not because I don't value public health or value people's well-being or that I'm some pro-capitalist, like right-wing extremist, but it's because I just don't think they work for the people who needed them the most. And I think they work the best for people who needed it the least.
0: Just a great question from a man named Eric. He writes this and I summarizing a lot of people, again, asking about how we can respond in a commonsensical way and communicate with people who are maybe being irrational. He says this as a police supervisor, sick of playing mask police and answering complaints when people don't think my officers are responding appropriately. And also, he says, as a board member at my temple, coming to a webinar directly from a COVID meeting, we've moved to fully remote Sabbath services. When open, we have a mask mandate, a vax mandate, and we're considering a child vaccine mandate. Our COVID committee, as is so common, he writes, is driven by fear. What do I say and what is actually reasonable? Lucy I'd love for you to answer that. Like, what is a rule of thumb here for people who are involved in their community who want to be responsible members of that community or that workplace or that religious, you know, services and feel like they're surrounded by people who have sort of given in to, you know, safetyism on this question? What are, what's a good rule of thumb in terms of rules and communication? So I would
3: I would liken that to the conversations I have with my patients one-on-one about, Risk and risk tolerance. So I'm seeing a lot of people because I I live in in in, in Washington D.C. It's a it's a very vaccinated and 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 liberal town um, for for the most part. And and I'm seeing a lot of people who are who are anxious out of proportion to the reality of their actual risk for COVID nineteen or severe outcomes from it. And so what I do is, you know, I want to understand where people are coming from. I want to understand where that narrative came from. And again, people are entitled to their own narrative. They are entitled to their risk tolerances. We all have different values and goals and that's normal. But I want to make sure when I'm talking to my patients, whether they're fearful of COVID or they're fearful of something else like, you know, public speaking or, you know, they have social anxiety. I want to make sure that they're they're They have the self-awareness. To to realize that some of the internal narratives we have, right? Because we tell ourselves stories all day long, some of them are true and some of them are not true. And, and the definition of anxiety, which by the way is part of the human condition, anxiety is defined as as when you call it capital A anxiety, is it's it's anxiety that's taken on a life of its own, that's out of proportion to the facts in front of you, that's causing And interfering with your quality of life, causing physical symptoms and sometimes medical problems. So I ask my patients who are anxious or particularly fearful, whose risk tolerance is maybe lower than they particularly need given their life circumstance, to just check their internal narratives, to have some self-awareness, to understand what the root causes are for their fears. And if if the fears are rooted in reality and rooted in fact, then they're entitled to it. They're entitled to it either way. Um, but to make sure that we are following the facts, that we have trusted guides, that we are not subject to groupthink or hysterical headlines in the media, which we all are to some extent. And there's a lot of good headlines in the media and a lot of fact-based headlines in the media. But, but, but part of what... My job is as an internist is not only to help people manage their cholesterol, their blood pressure, and their weight, but to help them think about their relationship to the external world, their relationship to the news, their relationship with other people, and how they frame their behaviors based on their thoughts and feelings, which sometimes are
0: irrational and sometimes are not serving them. Last two questions. Someone smart I had dinner with the other day outside. Um, someone who's more COVID neurotic said, you know, COVID's no longer primarily a health problem for most people. It's a bureaucratic problem. And I thought that was really insightful because I know that a cloth mask doesn't really do anything at this point and I'm vaccinated and I'm healthy, thank God. But when I'm asked to wear one, to walk to my table at a restaurant and then take it off, you know, I do it because A, I don't want to go viral causing a scene, but also because I know that the person who's asking me to do it, that's the hostess at the restaurant, is just doing her job. But there's a tension there between what we actually know, following the science, and sort of etiquette and being polite. How do you guys navigate that, given all that you know and your expertise? I mean, Vinay, when you walk into a cafe, do you put on the mask?
1: Oh, you know me. I guess um, I, the answer is like interpersonally, yes, I follow all the rules because I don't want to stick out and I don't want to, you know, I I just want to have a, you know, have a, a night out. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think you're you're spot on in the sense of like, how do we walk back these irrational rules? And it's going to be tricky and difficult. Um, and I think we're going to have to try our best to tell people that these rules aren't serving a purpose that's the great example you know am i does anyone really think that the cloth mask works when i get up to go to the restroom but not the four hours i'm sitting here laughing and having drinks at this table does anyone and you always point this out barry so well Are we not all troubled by the two-tier system in these restaurants that those of us eating, we're worthy, we don't have to wear the mask, but the people serving us do? I think these are, I mean, it's deeply problematic. We have to get away from it. We have to walk it back. Um, And we need a lot of these rules to to just be peeled off.
3: You know, it's called cognitive dissonance, right? And I think that's what a lot of kids are feeling and 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 educators and and human beings for that matter this cognitive dissonance you know intellectually that once you've been vaccinated and boosted your risk for severe outcomes is very low yet you're masking walking from the hostess stand to the table and then taking your mask off it at the end of the day it it grates it grates against our rational brains to be doing what i would call covid theater you know having the the pens that are dirty and the pens that are clean i mean no one is dying from the <laughs> dirty pens. not to mention is anybody washing the pens i don't at know at the
1: end of the end- day they just dump one into the other that's how they it <laughs> but, but
0: my fear is this you mentioned covid theater right think about security theater in our airports one guy one time walked on a plane with an attempted bomb in his shoe and we all take our shoes off forever Right. So the
3: reverberations. So it's going. Right. Exactly. The reverberations on society are going to be potentially dr- like drastic and draconian. And so this is a moment. This is a watershed moment in my mind, as we are watching Omicron, you know, begin to crest, and we're in such a chaotic moment of you know mixed messaging, communication, fear, anxiety, um, and you know ongoing and widening inequities. Um, where we really, ha- we, we have, I hate to, I hate to use the word opportunity because there's nothing good about this moment, but we, we have to use this moment as, as a, as an opportunity to think hard about what we need. We have laid bare so many problems in our society from, you know, disparities in healthcare access to, you know, the, the lack of mental health services for adolescents and for anybody for that matter, that this is an opportunity to really, really think hard. So we don't have COVID theater for another year, two years, five years. We need to, to, to look at our policies and our own behaviors as human beings with facts in the driver's seat.
0: Last question. And it really regards the, the thing I think that's on everyone's mind, which is how does this end? I saw a tweet yesterday from a scientist called Victoria Fox. I thought it was really insightful. And she said this, as a scientist, I used to think that pandemics ended when the population became immune to the pathogen. I now think if fully vaccinated and boosted colleges are requiring their already low-risk students to go remote, test, mask, and distance, this pandemic will only end through the courts. I'm wondering, as a jumping-off point to my question, um, what you think of that, or if you want to answer the question of just, how will this end? Maybe, Steph, let's start with you, and I'd love for each of you to answer it. Let's go Steph, Lucy, and then Benai.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think similar to, to both Lucy and I, like th- this idea of arbitrary interventions is really painful for me as somebody who's worked on building an evidence base throughout my career, following an evidence base both from a clinical as well as public health perspective. So I think, you know, it's painful. It's painful. Like, you know, if you can't explain an intervention, you should really reflect on whether uh, you want to do it. <laughs> you know, and that, that part I think is just, is hard. I think in terms of like, you know, how this ends, you know, part of this is gonna be um it, it's true that it's it's not gonna be something that's like related to case counts. I think there has to be these conversations. I, I will say this that there feels like there's a title shift with Omicron, that things are changing because people are getting COVID. Folks who have, you know, we've seen so many of these stories of like I did everything, I did everything and I just got COVID. And and I think like there's just like there's gonna be enough of those folks that had confirmed COVID that are going to just sort of move past it and want to have their, you know, their, their lives back. And I think what's interesting is that like from the beginning, everybody was going to have a breaking point. That breaking point could have been schools. It could have been masks, It could have been whatever it was, but everybody was going to have a breaking point. And I think folks are like, there's going to be sort of this like sufficient number of folks that have hit those breaking points that are just going to return to normalcy. And then like, you know, like one jurisdiction after another will like lose masks, Will you know, first it'll lose outdoor mass, then they'll lose indoor mass, and I think we're already seeing that with Dr. Walensky. Like, she did a tweet the other day, she kind of went out there and said, Listen, we need an adaptive intervention strategy for those who are most at risk and try to address those needs. A year ago, that would have been pure sort of GB, you know, Great Barrington. Now, is is you know, by the director of the CDC. So, I think we're seeing that, and I think what will happen is there'll be a tidal shift in terms of like you know, individual jurisdictions losing these things and then others following along because there's that that has been the trend to date. So I am optimistic that these things aren't going to be there'll be remnants. We'll feel remnants in terms of maybe contact tracing or some data issues, you know, but but I I do feel that like in the coming months and especially as we head into summertime, we're going to see a lifting a lot of these interventions that are not going to come back and 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 we will actively have to make it as as Ben and I talked about earlier to like prevent it from being like during flu season or other seasons that this makes a return. So that that I think will have to be an active kind of advocacy strategy. But but I do think a lot of this is going to lift in the in the in the next number of months. That's optimistic, but yeah.
3: So I agree with. But I agree with pretty much everything Steph said so eloquently, and i would i would I would talk about my favorite subject, which is mental health. I really think this is a parallel pandemic of of mental health and crisis. I mean, you know we've all experienced some sort of loss and grief, whether you've lost a loved one on a ventilator with your you know hands pressed against the glass in the ICU because you couldn't see their your loved one at the end of their life, whether you've lost your job or you've lost your you know classroom experience as, as, a, as a kindergartner, we've all experienced some sort of loss. Our lives have been appended. Um, and so I think one of the ways the pandemic quote unquote ends is by taking a broad reckoning with our emotional health to, to take stock of how we've handled stress. Maybe it's been, maybe it's, maybe you've, maybe you've been pandemic proof and you haven't had any hard times and you, you've, maybe you've grown as a person. Maybe you're in the best shape of your life, but for most people, um, I want to, I want to meet those people. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't really exist. It's the same person who I say lose 50 pounds and they come back in six months and they've lost it. That doesn't, that person doesn't exist. <laughs> so, 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 so uh, this is a very, very vulnerable time for humanity. And it, it, it is to me laid bare how our mental health is to our, our everyday lived experience, but also to our physical health and then our medical outcomes. I mean, I see people every day who are suffering from, you know, just burnout or anxiety or substance use. And I think this is a moment to really take stock of our emotional health, our needs, our, our relationships with food, alcohol, work, parenting, each other, um, to ask for help. Um, if you have the luxury of having health insurance that also ho- covers mental health, take advantage of it. If you are one of my patients who has the c- business card of a therapist, you know, you know in the bottom of your, your handbag, like take it out and call that person. Lean on your pastor, your priest, your, your rabbi, um, your dog. I mean, ask for help because this has been a hard time for all of us. And I also hope that on a, on a, on a, on a public health level that we can somehow – Weave mental health into, you know, healthcare reform because we were in a mental health crisis pre-pandemic. We were having, you know, opiate epidemic, overdoses, um, you know, diseases of despair were 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 running rampant well before COVID. So I think um, I think that would be my the one way I would define it. It it ends when you have taken stock of your emotional health and you have started to meet those needs and you've been able to frame risk and recalibrate, you know, your anxiety, your moods, um, and and get healthy from the inside out, so to
0: speak. Manai, quick closer.
1: Okay, so I guess I would say, it's a really good question, how does this end? And I think the quote you led off with by Victoria Fox is quite prescient. So I would say, how will the virus end? The virus will end, I think. I suspect this is actually not the last wave of the virus, the Omicron wave. They will be subsequent waves, and they will continue to come with a certain period frequency. I, th- I suspect they will be milder. I su- suspect that the milder, less lethal variants will dominate, and they will eventually infect us all. Every winter, we will face SARS-CoV-2 outbreaks. The patient will come in sick to the doctor, and it'll be, is it flu? COVID-19, is it SARS-CoV-2? You know, what is it? It'll be on the differential, all the things you think about. Um, older and immunocompromised people may sort of always be thinking about it, particularly in the COVID-19 season. But a doctor told me recently, she's an ER doctor, the moment it all changed for her. And it was very reminiscent of your point, which is, she said she started to worry more about testing positive than being positive. In the beginning of the pandemic, she was working frontline healthcare. She thought, I'll get this virus. I might die. But now she's worried, what if I test positive? My kids, their school is disrupted who's going to cover me at work? Oh my God, if I have a positive test, it's going to ruin my life. It's more of bureaucracy and paperwork. I talked to a guy today. He asked me, should my 11 year old son who got one dose and then he had COVID, should he get the second dose? And he said, his wife told him, the best reason to get the second dose is, you know, there's a lot of paperwork to do all these sports and he'll just check the boxes. And he says, does it feels wrong to me getting a vaccine for less paperwork? Like that's not the right reason. So the answer is how does it end sociologically? And I hate to say, but I think it is going to be, this event is the defining event of this century sociologically. I was, you know, in college on 9-11. I thought that would be a defining event of my lifetime, but I didn't know that this was coming. This is the defining event, I think, of my lifetime. What do I mean by that? I think some people, there's a new fraction of forever anxious people. They're always going to wear masks, hand sanitize, and take precautions uh, uh, in life. Um, but I think the ramifications of this beyond uh, are going to to be so great. Wealth inequality is the worst it's ever been. Income inequality, uh, as we talked about a little bit, political vulnerability. um, We are all damaged and broken, more partisan. Science is more tied to politics. I think we're as vulnerable as we've ever been. And in periods like this in human history, I think there's only one of two ways it goes. And I hate to say it, one way is the bad way that some despot, some tyrant seizes an opportunity. That's the bad way it could go. The other way is the reformer way. There's always been tough times and it's been an opportunity for tremendous political reform, new agencies, new uh, role of government in our lives and new changing of of policy. And the choice is up to us which direction we're going to go. So I think we're going to be living with this and its aftermath for a long time to come socially.
0: Dr. Vinay Prasad, Dr. Steph Burrell, Dr. Lucy McBride, and the 1,300 people with the 500 questions that they asked. Thank you all so much, um, and look forward to seeing you IRL sometime soon. Thanks, Barry. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. I love hearing from you, and I love hearing what's on your mind. So if you have a question or an idea for a panel like this one, please email us at tips at honestlypod.com. And if you want to participate in events like this in the future, head over to barryweiss.substack.com and hit subscribe. See you next week.
2: This is Brian Dean-Wright, former CIA operations officer. By now, you've probably heard of my podcast, The President's Daily Brief. We travel around the world talking about the most pressing news of the day. And the goal is to take complicated issues, both here and abroad, and make them really simple to understand. We also talk about solutions to the problems that we discuss, just like the actual brief delivered to the president each day in the Oval Office. So download and subscribe to The President's Daily Brief, available on all major podcast platforms starting at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. It'd be a pleasure if you joined us.